So, you know, when you're a guest pastor, you can try something new. And I would really like to be able to hear what the children might say to me during this children's sermon. So we're going to give this our best shot, and I will unmute. And I see kids right there, and that's wonderful. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad we're all here. And I would like to ask, during the gospel lesson, maybe you heard Jesus say, let the children come to me. And so when I think about children coming to Jesus, one of the ways that we do that right now is that we can come to Jesus in prayer. So I ask Truth Ann to give you a little heads up. If there were one or two things that we could pray for as we closed our children's time, because this is how we come to Jesus. So do you have one or two things that you would like us all here at home and here in the congregation to pray for? Anything. That's right, anything. We got a good house. That's a wonderful thing to pray for. Absolutely. You can give thanks for that. Is there anything else? Um, Zoe, my grandmother's dog. Oh, healing grandma's dog? Okay. That's perfect because tomorrow is St. Francis of Assisi, his feast day. And we always think about St. Francis and his love and compassion for animals. So that's perfect. Those are two perfect things. Thank you so much. Let's come to Jesus. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks that many of us have a house to go home to. We also remember those who have no home. Help us to be good stewards of the house that we have and to make sure that love dwells there. And when we think of those who dwell there, we think of our little friends, dogs and cats and pets. And so we pray for grandma's dog, that the dog might be better and stay around and be a good friend to us, as they so often are. All this we ask in the name of the one who said, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. It worked. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Sometimes we can be a little bit informal, even if I'm standing behind the altar. That's that's okay. That's okay. By the way, it's lovely to be back here again. It's lovely to see so many of you in the sanctuary. And of course, we're always grateful to have folks who are Zooming in for us too. But it's a beautiful day, and I'm so glad you're here. And I'm glad I'm here. So may grace and peace be with us. The grace to connect with one another in commitment and compassion. I was listening to a couple podcasts on preaching these last couple weeks. And the point was made pretty clear that the gospel for today is not a text you want to preach on. And I have to admit, I was tempted 
also to look away and perhaps to um, preach on the feast day of St. Francis, which would be tomorrow. That would be a lovely thing and a joyous thing, an easier thing. Um, but that seemed to me like an artful dodge. So here we are with one of these passages in our gospel lesson that is sometimes termed a clobber text, not unlike the texts that were used to clobber LGBTQIA plus people. And some denominations still use those texts to clobber LGBTQIA people. So we will do the best that we can to unclobber this text together while attempting to remain in accord with some very clear teachings of Jesus. Because contextually, it's not a clobber text, it's a commitment text. Remember that over these Sundays, we have been considering passages from the Gospel of Mark that seem to be a succession of teachings kind of patched together as Jesus does his best to teach his disciples what he thinks they're going to need to know when he's no longer with them. Just the Sunday before, remember, Jesus was teaching about temptations to sin, and there was that disturbing line, I remember hearing my dad reading it, and it was, if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It's like, you've got to be kidding. That's disgusting. So really strong texts that we're hearing from Mark. And Mark always just punches the text and then moves on, just as he does today for us. So these are not easy texts that we're listening to. Jesus had been teaching in the house in Capernaum. Then, before today's lesson, it says Jesus leaves that place and went to the region of Judea. He went south and beyond the Jordan. It's another long walk. And even there, beyond the Jordan, crowds, remember the crowd is a separate character in the Gospel of Mark, crowds again gather around Jesus and, as was his custom, he taught them. And that's where our Gospel lesson for today really begins. Because this time, along with the crowd, some Pharisees show up. Now, the Pharisees were a group of laymen. They were not priests. This was a reform movement to purify Jewish practice, started maybe a hundred years before Jesus' time, because the Hasmonean dynasty that was ruling then had become corrupted, really, really corrupted. And I've been told, because I, I did not study Hebrew in seminary, one of the great lacks that I feel, I have been told that the word for Pharisee is derived from a word in Hebrew that means to separate. You know, St. Paul was a Pharisee. But these Pharisees want to check on Jesus' doctrinal purity, just like some Lutherans. And in order to test Jesus, they ask him a question. The background behind this question is that divorce was not uncommon among the Hebrews and people who lived in the legacy of Mosaic law. Rabbis agreed that separation was not desirable, but it was quite lawful. And as we know, marriage contracts also involved property rights, like the woman, property rights of one kind or another. So the Pharisees are asking this question just in order to test Jesus, to do a litmus test for him. And Jesus actually responds like a good rabbi with something of a midrash. 
he doesn't quote other rabbis, but he does ask the Pharisees, well, what did Moses command you? And the Pharisees, of course, being good students of the law, respond as they've been taught, that Moses allowed a husband to write a certificate of dismissal and then to divorce the wife. Actually, even that law of Moses was something of an advance because it required written action on the part of the husband rather than just some type of summary statement like, I divorced thee three times and you're gone. In any case, Jesus responds to their quotation of Moses by citing what God did, not just what Moses wrote. And Jesus points out, and this is an incredibly important part, Jesus points out that Moses allowed divorce because of, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, your hardness of heart. And the word for that is sclerocardia. Just like arteriosclerosis is hardening of the arteries, this is sclerocardia. And did you notice the Pharisees have nothing to say? Where did they go? What did they do? They were probably shut down. In their attempt to test Jesus, these Pharisees have themselves been tested, I think, and perhaps found wanting. They just went away. And then, once Jesus and the disciples are away from the crowd and in the house, we don't know what house, the disciples ask him again about this whole matter, because it probably got their attention. And Jesus replies directly to the disciples. And in addition to this clear and direct statement, there is that rather surprising aspect of what Jesus said about a woman divorcing her husband and marrying another. And it's surprising because typically a woman divorcing her husband wasn't even going to happen among Jewish people at that time. Although I did read that some rabbis wrote that if a wife wanted a divorce, she could make her husband miserable enough that he would go ahead and divorce her anyway. Thank you. <laughs> a little bit of levity here, just a bit. By the way, if we compare the three synoptic accounts of this same lesson from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's Mark's version of this teaching of Jesus that is by far the most stringent and the most rigorous. Remember, this is contextual. It's a context so vastly different from ours, but still it has something to tell us. Then, as happens so often in Mark, did you notice during the gospel being read, there's this sudden shift in the text to a different story. And this one's about little children. Commentators have observed that these two texts about divorce and the little kids are closely positioned for a reason. This was not a coincidence for Mark. Rather, it is that the Gospel of Mark has Jesus teaching about vulnerable and disempowered people, as many, many divorced women were at that time, and still now sometimes, and as often most children were at that time, and sometimes at our time. So the disciples were attempting to do some gatekeeping with these children, speaking sternly to people who were bringing little ones to Jesus so that he might touch them. And Mark tells us that Jesus was much displeased or was indignant 
And you know this word is used by Mark only once, and it's the only use of this word to refer to Jesus in all of the Gospels. So Mark's making a strong point. So the disciples are put in their place, and Jesus folds the children in his arms. And the tense of that verb, folks, implies that it took some time. It was an ongoing action as Jesus folded the children into his arms. It wasn't just a quick hug and be done. And the story ends, and our gospel lesson today ends, with Jesus blessing the little children. So, as I like to say, what are we going to do with this text, this disturbing and comforting gospel lesson? As you will probably hear me say again in the time that we have together, it's complex, it's complicated, and it's contextual. Thinking of the first part of today's lesson, we know that this text has been used to clobber and that those with the power to clobber the powerless want to make sure the powerless stay that way. Even so, as the rabbis would say, on the other hand, even so, we know that sustaining a long-term, intimate, positive, mutually growth-promoting relationship is one of the more challenging things that many of us will ever do. I'm just telling it like it is. In our old service book and hymnal, the red hymnal before the green hymnal, the marriage ceremony had a passage where the pastor said concerning marriage, and though by reason of sin, many a cross has been laid thereon. In my observation, that's a striking understatement. Rather than two becoming one flesh, Many, many relationships, even those that have lasted decades, have missed the mark. I could tell you stories of my work in Sun City in the retirement community, where I heard about abuse in relationships that have been going on for decades. And what really disturbed me was that in about half of those circumstances, the folks had themselves parked in a church pew every Sunday. How can this be? How can this be? Or I recall one of my colleagues in Connecticut. We hadn't known each other long at all. It may have been almost the first time that we met. And she was speaking of her parents' mess, uh, marriage. And she said, some kids pray their folks won't get divorced. Some kids pray they would. It's not easy, is it? Nevertheless, Jesus' words in this text aren't quaint or outdated. Rather, they point to affirming the commitment that love is not conditional. One commentator wrote, this text brings protection to women and actually to kids also. Someone vulnerable has gotten hurt. This is not about breaking a rule this is because God stands against the rending of human community. This is not a clobber text to be wielded by the self-righteous. Rather, it's a call to commitment. And, and, on the other hand, I have had sufficient training in intimate partner violence, and most of us have had enough life experience to know that this is also not a call 
or acquiescence to a lifetime of abuse. It's complex. It's complicated. It's contextual. Yes, we change as individuals, and our relationships change. I love this quote from Esther Perel. She's a brilliant therapist and a prolific author, and she said, Many of us will have three or four or more long-term intimate relationships in our lifetimes. If we're fortunate, they will all be with the same person. It's true. Our relationships change. When you say, you're not the one I married, of course not. It's 45 years later. I've changed. You've changed. Our relationship has changed, and that's okay. That's okay. An ongoing intimate relationship is also, of course, a spiritual relationship. And Bill O'Hanlon, who's another one of my favorite authors and therapists, has said that spirituality, and I really like his definition, spirituality consists of compassion, connection, and commitment. Compassion, connection, and commitment. Does that sound meaningful in regards to today's gospel lesson? So, how are we as a congregation working to support, uphold, and maintain healthful relationships? How are we as a congregation working to enfold our children? And I know that right now during the pandemic, these are excruciating challenges for us. How have we church-wide across the ELCA worked to support and enfold our children? How have we as tax-paying citizens worked to enfold and support our young people? When I was working in Latvia off and on over the course of uh, seven years, we had access to so many kindergartens that had been operated by the Soviets, but they'd been closed when the Soviets left. I had to say that looking at that repeatedly, I felt reproached at the time, even though, of course, I had no sympathy for Soviet occupation. I nevertheless was reproached when I thought of the public resources that they committed that were no longer committed to early childhood development and nurture. We talk a good line, but are we doing any better here now? And as little ones are growing up, how do we support orderly and productive public education with equal opportunities? And on and on and on. Can our actions and our expenditures match up with our rhetoric? It's complex. It's complicated. It's contextual. It calls for compassion, connection, and commitment. Dallas Willard was a Baptist minister who taught philosophy in the philosophy department at USC, which is a pretty amazing thing right in and of itself. He wrote a wonderful book about understanding how God changes lives. I'll probably share passages from it with you down the road again. And he said, Dallas Willard said, spirituality is a relationship of our embodied selves to God that has the natural and irrepressible effect, the natural and irrepressible effect of making us alive to the kingdom of God. That's here and now. 
Willard also writes, although it is within God's power and presence to bring health and peace to the earth, that does not mean that we are mere spectators. That power and presence will not fall upon us like a stone. There is human instrumentality involved, which is why God waits for the fullness of time determined by our capacities to receive what God would give. God calls us to be part of God's efforts. So may grace and peace be with us, the grace to connect with one another, with commitment, in compassion.